We give ourselves now to the preaching of God's word, to hearing his word as it is read and as preached to us that we might hear it and believe it and live our lives according to it. This morning I'm going to read for us a few verses from the book of Proverbs. Hear the word of the Lord. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word now like starving people come to a meal, ready to feast. So we pray that you would give us an appetite for the things of you, taste buds for the things of heaven, that we might eat and be full and satisfied. We thank you that you have given us wisdom for this life, that we might not have to grope about in the darkness figuring our own way, but you have given us your word as a light to our path and a lamp unto our feet. We pray then that we would have wisdom to walk in your ways, that our lives might be full and joyful, and that we might better reflect you. We pray that even today that you would give grace to every discouraged heart to hear this word with open hearts and that it would be good news to us. We pray that you would comfort those who are downcast and afflicted. And we pray that this would be good news to our ears and we would be drawn to you and wowed again by the thought that God befriends us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we decided that we were going to hit pause on our study of the book of Acts and pick that up again in the fall, and so we'll begin that again in September. And so what we wanted to do over this summer was uh, do something for the next five weeks, and here's what we want to do. Uh, recently, the American Bible Society did a study of the top internet searches of people in our city in Philadelphia and what people were looking up when it came to the Bible. Now, I know that sounds a little big brotherish of them watching our searches, but you can let that one go and just focus in on this. They studied all the different searches of people in Philadelphia, and here are five of the ones most frequently searched. When it comes to the Bible, Philadelphians, people like you, people like me, your coworkers, your neighbors, your classmates, your friends and relatives wanted to know, what does the Bible say about friendship, forgiveness, depression, love, and sex. Now, just considering those questions tells you a little bit about us and what people in our city are thinking about and going through, but here are five of the questions that people in our city are asking about the Bible. And so what we want to do is we want to try our best to engage those questions with answers from the scriptures, beginning today with what does the Bible say about friendship? What does the Bible say about friendship? 
Now, I don't know if it will surprise you, but the Bible actually has a great deal to say about friendship, a lot to say about friendship. In fact, the Bible places a priority and a prominence to friendship relationships. And the reason that may be surprising is that often, out of all the relationships that can come into your life, friendship is the one that can get squeezed out. It can be put into second tier, take a back seat, be put in second place because it doesn't often feel necessary like the other relationships might. It can feel optional. In fact, for people like us who are busy with busy lives, there are other relationships that are going to press on you no matter what. No matter how busy you are, family relationships are going to press in on you. No matter how busy you are, work relationships are going to press in on you. But if there's a relationship that takes an enormous amount of time and investment and energy and yet can be squeezed out of your life or take second tier or go to the back seat, it's friendship relationships. Those are the relationships, for example, that don't even have a, a biological necessity. You need marriage relationships. You have family relationships. But this one can take second tier. What, one preacher put it this way. He said, every culture in the world tends to relegate friendship to the back seat, to the second chair, to second tier. For example, if you've got traditional cultures, perhaps Eastern cultures, some of us, I come from an Eastern culture, and I could tell you the priority and prominence of relationships was given to family, right? Husband, wife, mother, father, brother, sister, cousins, blood relatives, that matters more than any other relationship in your world. And so for Eastern traditional cultures, familial love, family relationships is everything. Now, on the other hand, for a culture like ours, modern, Western, individualistic cultures, we tend to prioritize and give prominence to romantic relationships, to love, to sex, right? If you think about our culture, one pastor went on to say, for example, just consider all the movies that you could pile in a stack about romantic relationships and all the ones about friendship. And which stack would be higher? And what songs are on the radio? Or, or this is why when you go to the checkout line at the grocery store, you don't see magazines with covers that say 21 tips for great friendships, right? That's not what it says. The tips are about romance or the tips are about sex because that's what our culture thinks is most valuable. Family relationships or romantic relationships, those things are essential to life. You can't have offspring without one. You can't be raised and nurtured without the other. Every other relationship comes, and yet, while all the other cultures will tend to put friendship second tier, the Bible has an incredibly high view, an incredibly high vision for friendship. In fact, listen to this verse from Proverbs 13, verse 20. This is Solomon who's one of the wisest men to ever live, and he talks about wisdom, and here's what he says. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Do you hear what Solomon's saying? Here is the wisest of all men, and he says, essentially, listen, your life and the outcome of your life essentially comes down to who you hang with, who your friends are, who your companions are, who you run with. You're not making yourself as you go. When you're young, maybe your family nurtures you, but who you become is the community of friends around you. Or one preacher put it this way, show me your friends and I will show you your future. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. 
Because you are a product of the pack that you run with. If you run with the wise, Solomon says, you will become wise. And if you run with fools, you will suffer harm. If three or four of your dearest, closest friends love the Lord God with all their heart, mind, and soul, then there's a good chance you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. If three or four of your closest friends are fools, then I'll let you finish the sentence of what that means about you as well, right? Because our friends show us who we are and our future. It's, it's, it's a sobering thought, especially as we think about and pray for our little ones. It is a really godly prayer that parents should pray that God would surround our kids with really great friends. Because you have them for a season, but the most formative relationships of their life will be their companions, their friends. The Bible has lots to say about friendship. And so this morning, I want us to consider three things the scriptures would say about friendship. Three questions. One, why friendship is needed. Two, what friendship requires. And three, how we can have great friendships. One, why friendships are needed. Two, what friendships require. And three, how we can have great friendships. Essentially, why we need them, what it takes, and the power to have great friendships. Here's the first one. Why friendships are needed. You think about what a big role friendships play in your life. Right? You think about what a big role friendships play in your life. I can tell you, for example... My family, we just bought a, a new home. For a number of reasons, we bought a home. And I can tell you, out of all the things that led us to the particular home that we th- uh, thought of, that we ended up buying, I- I'm almost embarrassed to say the leading factor in why we partic- the particular home that we picked was because it was near Joe and Lisa Tartakarovo, right? I-, I literally bought a home based on friendship. You think of that. For example, when we, when we closed on the house, the four of us sat on the front lawn and we were just sort of reminiscing. We had met each other 20 years ago as single folks in college. And now, in fact, I went back and, and found an old picture. So I'm going to show you a picture. That's Shainu and Lisa almost 20 years ago as just two single gals in college at the University of Albany. And then you fast forward and now married children next-door neighbors. I mean, I bought a house based on friendship. So you think of that. You think of how powerful. Why is friendship that powerful? Why why is it such a factor in our lives? Well, here's what the scriptures would say. In in talking about what the Bible says about friendships, I want to show you three passages. We'll start at the beginning. I, I read a book this week called The Company We Keep by Jonathan Holmes, and he said, when you open the Bible to the very first page you're met with a surprise. And here's the surprise. When you get to Genesis 1, it's the creation account. In the beginning, God. And then you're told of how God creates. And in verse 26 of Genesis 1, you get this surprise because God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us make man in our image image in our likeness. And if you're reading the Bible for the first time, maybe you've read that before and so it just flies right over you. If you're reading it for the first time, you can't help but go, who is this one God speaking to? Who's the us? And there, right in the first page of scripture, we get the first hint of the nature of God, of the triune nature of God. 
we get the first hint of the Trinity. That is, that the uncreated, eternal, self-existent, always was, always is, always will be God, has eternally existed in community. Or for the sake of what we're talking about today, God has always existed in friendship. You think of that. The Father and the Son and the Spirit in friendship. Meaning, there has never been a moment in all of eternity, from eternity past to eternity future, where there was not friendship. Because friendship is in the very nature of God. God exists within himself in friendship, love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's surprise one. You get surprise two when you turn the page and you get to Genesis 2. Because surprise two is we, human beings, were made in the image and likeness of God. And yet in Genesis 2, a perfect God, catch this, creates a perfect world with a perfect man, and yet you get a surprise in Genesis 2, which is God looks at the man and says, it is not good that the man is alone. You think of that. Here's a good God who has created a good world, who has pronounced his good benediction over everything. Every day he would end the day by saying, and it was good. And now you get to Genesis 2, and you get, it's not good for the man to be alone. Now here's why that's a surprise. It's a surprise because Genesis 3 hasn't happened yet. Genesis 3 is the fall of man, the sin of man, where everything about the world and the universe gets broken and ruined. Everything gets fractured and shattered into pieces. And yet before sin entered into the world, you think of that, before there was sin in a perfect world with a perfect man who had a perfect relationship with a perfect God, Something was not good. How is that? Because this God who existed within himself in community made man in his own image, but this man had no community. And so it was not good. And what that means is Adam didn't need friendship because he was sinful or imperfect. Adam needed friendship precisely while he was perfect. Tim Keller says it this way, a preacher from New York. He says a great quote. Listen to this. This is one ache, the ache for friendship, that is part of Adam's perfection. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy paradise without friends. That's a great line. Don't let that one go. You know what that means? God could literally drop you in heaven itself, and yet you would have no joy if it was just you and God. Here was a perfect man in a perfect world, and yet it was not good. He goes on to say, God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy our joy without friends, human friends. Adam had a perfect quiet time every day, 24 hours, never had a dry one, and yet he needed friends. That's how he was made. A perfect man with a perfect God in a perfect relationship, and yet it was not good till God gave him a friend. So here's what that means. Here's what Keller's saying. Every other ache of the human soul can be traced back to Genesis 3. Every problem, every longing and lack within us is because of the fall, because of brokenness, because of sin, because of our rebellion against God. But what this means is if you have a longing and a desire for friendship... That's because you are like God, made in his image. Here's what that means. 
If you are lonely, if you desire friendship, then there is nothing wrong with you. It's not because you're immature. It's not because you need to grow up or become more holy or get more sanctified. It's because you were made in the image of your creator. In fact, so hardwired into us is this, that when your creator became human, when he took on flesh, Jesus had, and catch this, Jesus needed human friends. You think of that. When God became flesh, Jesus had a perfect relationship with the Father, and yet Jesus found himself still needing friends, human friends. He found himself in a garden like the first Adam himself, and though he had a perfect relationship with God, found himself needing friends. We were made for friendship. So that's what that means. Why is friendship so powerful? Why is it so needed? Why does your soul ache for friends? It's because you bear the imprint of your creator, of your designer. You were made that way. You were made for deep, meaningful, true friendships. Okay, but second then, what do friendships require? We know we need them. What do they require? So let's go back to Solomon. Remember, after Jesus, the wisest man to ever live on the planet, who believed, as he wrote the book of Proverbs, that having friendships, great friendships, was key to living a wise and successful life. Solomon believed, as you read throughout the Proverbs, that there's no way you can make it in life and be successful without great friends. So I want to steal from Tim Keller again, because Keller identified a few building blocks and marks of what Proverbs says it takes to be great friends, to have great friendships. Now, there's undoubtedly many we could say, but from the scriptures, from Proverbs, I want to say here are three building blocks, marks of great friendships. Here are three things that great friendships require. They are constancy, candor, and carefulness. Great friendships from the book of Proverbs, require constancy, candor, and carefulness. We know we need them. Now, how do we get them? They require, first, constancy. Listen to this verse from Proverbs 18, 24. It says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You consider what Solomon, the wisest man, is saying. You, you imagine, for example, he's saying this to an Eastern traditional culture, a culture that would have prized family relationships, a, a culture that would have valued blood relatives more than anything else. And to that culture, he is saying there are relationships that can be even deeper than blood. You see how high friendship is being exalted? A, a man can have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. What that's saying is there are certain things that friendship relationships can bring into your life that no other relationship can. Not romantic relationships, not even familial relationships can bring into your life some of the things that friendship relationships can. This is a high view of friendship. Or listen to what he says in 17 verse 17. He says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. What's he saying? He's saying, look, when the going gets rough, 
when there's adversity, when crisis comes into your life, when things are collapsing, often you can expect that family will be there for you. That's what family's for. That's what they're born for. They're, they're there in those moments of crisis. There's love there. There's loyalty there. There's a bond there. But there isn't necessarily friendship there. Keller put it this way. He said, if you go through a trial, you know that your sibling is going to be there for you and love for you, but, but your sibling may not be the one that you go out for a drink with or hang out with or, or spend your Friday evening with. Because there's a difference between family and friendship. Family will be there for adversity, but a friend, a friend isn't born to you. A friend chooses you. A friend didn't get stuck with you. He selected you. She picked you. And a friend here says loves you at all times, not just in the moments of adversity. A friend is there in the bad times and the good times and the ordinary times and the routine times. A friend is there at all times. What it's saying is there's a constancy to friendship. A brother may be there for adversity, but a true friend is constantly available to you in all the seasons of life, in the storms and the valleys, in the sunny days, in all the days of life. Particularly, a true friend shows himself when things are hard, when everything is crumbling and collapsing. Look again once more at 18 verse 24. You can see it on the screen. It says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know what that means? That means that Facebook may tell you that you have 700 friends. And I can promise you, you do not have 700 friends. You know why? Who is it that you can call at 2 in the morning when your life is falling apart? That's your friend. Everyone else is companions. Right? And I can promise you, 700 people are not going to pick up your call at 2 in the morning. And you don't want to pick up 700 calls at 2 in the morning. That's why, to be honest, we can't have that many friends. We, we're too limited. Because if a friend is constantly available, only a few is the limit that we can have. We, we just can't have that many friendships. To be a true friend, you think of this. Even the Lord Jesus, when he became man, had what? He had a pack of 12 that he ran with, and even from there had a circle of three, an inner circle of three that was with him at the closest of moments. He loved every human being he had ever met, and yet he was closest of friendships with three. You imagine then what that means for us. You see, there are hundreds of companions you might have. What the verse is saying is, look, a man can have 700 friends on Facebook and still come to ruin. But if you've got one true friend who sticks closer than a brother, that's the contrast of the verse. A man can have many companions and still come to ruin, but there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Meaning, you can have 700 people on Facebook and you'll still come to ruin, but if you've got a true friend, that friend will not let you come to your end, will not let you unravel, will not let you come to ruin. A true friend is the one that you call at 2 in the morning. And you start the conversation by saying, listen, I'm so sorry to bother you. And your friend sends back, shut up. What are you talking about? Right? That's a friend. What do you mean bothering me? What, what's going on? That's a friend. A true friend. There's nothing they wouldn't do for you. There's no cost they wouldn't bear for you. They will sacrifice, but they will not let you come to ruin. There's a quote in the Lord of the Rings book. 
If you know the Lord of the Rings story, it's this hobbit named Frodo who's given this ring and given this deadly mission and this dangerous ring, and he's going to go it alone, except his friends won't let him go it alone. In fact, listen to this quote from one of his friends, a friend named Sam, and tell me your soul does not crave for a friend like Sam. He says this, You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin, to the bitter end, and you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you yourself keep it, but you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like hounds. Isn't that what you crave in your soul? Because a true friend says to you, listen, you can either let me come with you or I'm going to hound you and follow you, but you are not ridding me of you. You can't get rid of me. I am coming with you. There is no way I am letting you go through this alone. True friendship, we all need it. We were wired for it, but it requires constancy. It also requires second candor. Listen to more of Solomon's Proverbs. This is Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. It says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Right? Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What's it saying? He's saying, listen, an enemy tells you what you want to hear. A true friend tells you what you need to hear. That's the difference. An enemy will flatter you with kisses, but a true friend sometimes will pierce you with hard words that your heart needs to hear because there's candor in true friendship. You see, a friend, we said, is constant. They choose you. They accept you. They weren't stuck with you. They weren't born with you. They love and accept you. They see you as you are, and they're not going anywhere. But in a real and true friendship, it's secure enough that it can survive at times hard but necessary words. You see, the the pair here is saying in these verses 5 and 6, if you're the kind of friend that says, I can't possibly say this to them, it would be too hard for them to hear, for me to say. Then the verse is saying, you are acting like an enemy. Because that's what an enemy does. An enemy gives profuse kisses. But a true friend gives open rebuke, gives faithful wounds. And the truth is, Solomon knows if you hang with the wise, you will become wise. If you find good friends who will give you faithful wounds, you will become the person you want to be. You show me your friends, you can show your future. Right? If you find faithful work, friends who will give faithful wounds, you'll become the kind of husband or father or mother or, or sibling or, or friend or woman that you want to be. Without these, we'll never become that. You think, for example, if you've ever done soul care here at Seven Mile Road Church, right? we have these smaller communities where we gather and these small groups do soul care, meaning we, we try to care for one another's souls. As we do that, I can tell you soul care can either be the most life-transforming, life-giving thing or the most life-sucking, life-draining hour of your life, right? It completely depends, and I can tell you I've experienced both. Soul care, when it's not good, is like bad therapy. 
right? You're, you're talking to someone who's not trained and doesn't know what to tell you anyway. You're staying at shallow, superficial stuff. You're just sort of recounting the events of the week. I had a ham sandwich on Tuesday. Wednesday was really tiring. And it's this life-draining experience. When soul care is good, it's because there's a blossoming and growing friendship where there's candor, where you've let your guard down, which you've let the other person in and see you as you really are, where they can have freedom to speak hard but necessary words to you. There's candor when soul care is good. The most life-changing experience in the world can be when there's enough of a friendship between you and a, a Christian brother or sister that they can see things others don't see and say things others won't say. And where you are invited to see things others don't see and say things others don't say. When there's true friendship, there's constancy, but there's also candor. Third, there's also carefulness. And this is really important. In fact, candor and carefulness needs to be coupled together. In true friendship, what it requires is also carefulness. And what do I mean? Listen to this and don't miss this. Candor without carefulness is deadly. Candor without carefulness is deadly. What do we mean? You see, candor is having the courage to speak the truth, but carefulness is the wisdom to speak the truth in love. Candor is knowing what needs to be said. Carefulness is knowing when it should be said and how it should be said. Candor is telling it like it is, but carefulness is the wisdom to know that that like it is, needs to be said at a certain time, in a certain way, because you care for the person who's going to receive it. Candor without carefulness is deadly, and a true friend not only has candor, but is also careful. Listen to this from Proverbs 25, verse 20. It says, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day. Or 27, verse 14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. Do you hear what those verses are saying? Listen, there's nothing wrong with singing happy songs. So why would he say this? Whoever sings songs, there's nothing wrong with singing happy songs. But if you sing them to a grieving, heavy heart, then it shows what? It shows that you are disconnected with this person. You're emotionally out of sync with them. They're grieving. How can you even imagine singing a happy song? A true friend couldn't possibly sing a happy song because a true friend couldn't be happy when you're sad. They're so emotionally connected to you, it's not possible for them to sing a song of joy about how bright and sunny it is when you're going through a valley and a storm. You see, there's nothing wrong with a happy song, but to sing a happy song to a grieving heart is inconsiderate and unkind and careless, and it lacks the carefulness. It shows that at best you're a companion, but you're not a friend. Or, or the next one was what? Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. You think of that. There's nothing wrong with blessing your friend. But what's the picture here? If your neighbor came over with a bullhorn at four in the morning to say, good morning, Jesus loves you today, there would be cursing, right? That would be a blessing, but it would be met with cursing, and that's what it is. That good word has turned into a curse. 
You could have screamed obscenities at me at four in the morning and it would have made no difference. It's the same difference. What does that mean? It means that it's not just enough to do a thing, but there's the carefulness to know what this person needs and when they need it and how they need it. What it means is that a true friend is caring, considering, loving enough to speak to you with candor, but consider enough to know you, or as one author put it, to know the inner topography of your heart, to know when and how and what should be said. A true friend is so emotionally connected to you, they can't sing songs of joy when you're grieving. So this is what it requires. We know the Bible says then that friendships are needed because we were wired for them. And we know here's what Proverbs says. It takes constancy and candor and carefulness. Now, we could end there. We could end there except here's the thing. If we just left it there and said, so now go be great friends, I think all of us would know, okay, one of the things that we feel when we hear all of this, I think, isn't there a part of you that, that longs for this kind of friendship in your life? Isn't there a part of you that craves for more of this kind of friend? Don't you crave for someone to say to you like Sam said to Frodo, Thick and thin we're in. You can let us come with you or we're going to hound you, but we're not going anywhere. Someone to call at two in the morning who would tell you, shut up, you're not bothering me. Someone to let you in, to let you see them, to know you, to be connected with you, who's not stuck with you but has chosen you. Doesn't your soul crave deep, true, biblical friendship? But at the same time, as you hear this, isn't there another part of you that knows the truth is you're not that great of a friend either? You don't have the perhaps great friendships that you want, but the truth is you're not the great friend that this passage is described either. I mean, the truth is for all of us, I think we'd say we want to be great friends. But who of us would say always available, never lets a friend down, constant availability, total candor, always careful and sensitive, someone who never lets someone down, who's transparent always to let them see the real you, who's always able to say the hard things that needs to be said. I think all of us would say, listen, we want to be great friends, but we fall short. And so, here's the third thing. How then can we get power for great friendship? We know we need them. We know what they take. How can we get power for great friendship? Would you listen to me and listen with me to what Jesus says to his disciples before he's about to die? He gathers them the evening before in John 15, and he says this, verse 13 of John 15. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then in 14, he calls them friends. And then he says in 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, brother and sister, would you let this simple thought sink in? Jesus Christ calls you his friend. Constancy, candor, carefulness, 
Jesus Christ calls you his friend. Please don't let that one wash over your head. Jesus looked at those who loved him, who trusted him, who believed in him, who were following him, and he called them friends. He said, no longer am I calling you servants. A master doesn't disclose his heart to his servants. A master commands and the servant obeys. But Jesus is saying, I'm not just out for your obedience. I want your friendship. Jesus Christ desires your friendship. I mean, while I was singing, I was just thinking, you imagine what that means about your worth and value to God? You think of this. If I told you that I was best friends with Carson Wentz, you immediately would think much higher of me. My, my view in your eyes would reach the roof. Why? Not because anything about me changed, but by virtue of his friendship, somehow that esteems me. Changes my worth and value. You think of this. I was thinking while we were singing. It's like if you're the nerd at school and all of a sudden the captain of the football team comes and has lunch with you. You're the the biggest dork in school, but the most popular kid is your best friend. What happens? That changes your worth and your value and your standing. You actually derive something from that. What does it mean that the Lord of the universe has befriended you, calls you, counts you, considers you his friend? What does that mean about how God values you, sees you? And moreover, if the most popular kid in school is your best friend, then what some other person thinks of you doesn't destroy you anymore because you're so secure in this friendship. There's a power when you come to see the friendship of Jesus Christ in your life because now you're not putting on humans what you already have in Christ. You are not asking a flawed human being to bear the weight that only Jesus can and Jesus willingly has. Jesus looks at you and says, No longer do I call you brother, you sister, servant, but I call you friend. And consider with me, Sevma wrote, what kind of friend Jesus was. You know, the very night he said, John 15, the next day he was going to die, that very night, he asked his friends to do what? To stick with him. Stay close. Love me at all times, in my highs and in my valleys. Stick close like a brother. He went into a garden and begged his friends to be friends to him that night. You think of that. The second Adam in the garden had a perfect relationship with the Father, and yet that night he pleaded with his friends to be friends to him. Would you stay with me? Would you pray for me? I'm coming to ruin. Would you stick close like a brother? And what did those disciples, those friends do? Every one of them fell asleep, meaning when the 2 a.m. phone call came, they didn't pick it up. They slept right through it. In his darkest hour, they weren't there for him. And then when it got darker still, they ran away and fled and abandoned him. And when it got darker still, one betrayed him, and darker still, another denied him. These are the kinds of friends they were to him. And let me ask you, we weren't in that garden, but what kind of friend are you to God? But now I ask you, what kind of friend has Jesus been to you? You see... The very next day, after they all fled, after they all left, after they all abandoned, after they all slept, 
after they betrayed and denied, the next day would you see Jesus strung up on a cross, stretched open, bleeding and dying for them? And would you see here on that cross is a friend who loves at all times? Here on that cross is a friend who has seen you at your worst and says, I am not going anywhere. There is nothing about you I could discover that would make me run. I know everything there is to know about you, and I will constantly be here for you. A friend that sticks closer than a brother. Would you look at the cross and see a friend that will not let you come to ruin no matter what it costs him, even if it costs him his body and his blood? Would you see a friend who is so connected to you that he can't possibly rejoice if it means that you will be eternally grieving? In fact, a friend who is so connected to you, he can't sit still in heaven if it means that you will be in hell. A friend so connected to you that he, he says, I cannot live if it means you're going to die. And a friend who says instead, I will grieve so that you can sing happy songs. And I'll go to hell and be cast out from the Father so that you can be brought in and go to heaven. And I'll die so that you can live. You see, it's seeing the friend that we have in Jesus that can give us power to be friends like Jesus. It's when we see his friendship that we can become friends like him. You see, it's when you see him love you at your worst and still know you and still love you that you might actually be open and vulnerable with others because the most important being in the universe has seen your worst and loves you still. And so you can become open with others. And moreover, you can see others at their worst and love them because Jesus saw you at your worst and loved you. It's when you see him bearing any cost to ensure that you won't come to ruin, sacrificially loving you, that you can sacrificially love others as you have been loved by Jesus. It's when you see his friendship that he is there for you at all times, available, that you can pick up the call at two in the morning and be available as Jesus is to you. Seeing his friendship can empower you, move you, motivate you, free you to be the kind of friend you want to be. And moreover... When you see that you have the ideal friend in Jesus, then you can befriend flawed human beings who will never live up to these ideals. You can embrace flawed human beings. You can show them grace because you have been shown grace. They won't constantly be available. They won't always be careful. They won't always have candor. And yet there's grace because you have been a weak friend to Jesus, and yet he has befriended you. So, what does the Bible say about friendship? A lot. Tell our city the Bible has a lot to say about friendship. And tell our city we were made for friendship. We were hardwired for it, created in the image and likeness of our God who within himself has friendship. And tell our city that real friendship, biblical friendship, is this thing that we all want, but it requires more than we could possibly give. And then tell our city and tell your soul that real friendship begins with a friendship with Jesus. That when you find friendship with Jesus, it can give you power to be the friend you want to be and have the friends that you need to have. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would come to every 
hurting heart this morning and you would befriend us with your constancy, with your candor, with your carefulness. Thank you that you do not crush a bruised reed or, or stomp out a flickering wick. You walk delicately into our lives. You don't stomp about. You are careful. You tell us like it is, but with love, with care. You speak the truth about us in love. You pierce us. You wound us, but faithfully. You step into our lives to transform us to be more like yourself, to be more like the God we were created in the image of. You are constantly available. You, you never let us down. We pray that we would be amazed today by the friendship we have with God through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would move us to be those kinds of friends. And we even ask that you would make Seven Mile Road Church not just a friendly place, but a place where deep friends are made. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.